to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 22, The Last Continent. Published in 1998, The Last Continent is the 22nd Discworld novel and the sixth and final novel featuring Rincewind as the main protagonist of a Discworld novel. Was this the announcement that you teased last week? Yeah, this is. This is our milestone. We have finally finished one of the branches of the Discworld. Oh. This is not the last time we will see Rincewind. I want to make that very clear. This is the last time we're going to see a novel focus on him as a protagonist in this way. Yeah, it would be slightly strange if he just went like, all right, bye guys, and then just never appeared again. Right, yeah, that would be very weird. Yeah, like, uh, oh, what? What's her name from Sorcery? Not Sorcery, sorry, Equal Rights. Oh, yeah, Ask. Yeah, because Ask kind of disappears at the end. Like, it's like they formed a whole new branch of magic, and then we, like, don't see her again for a while anyway. I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be, it would be a little weird if Rincewind did. And I, I definitely want to talk about how this is the last, this is supposed to be kind of the final book in Rincewind's arc as the coward of a thousand retreating backs. I definitely want to talk about that as, as we go through this, but I do want to reassure you that like, this is not the last time we're going to see him. There are no adaptations of this, just like Jingo, I think the subject matter makes it really difficult for someone to try to adapt this book. I don't know of any adaptations of it. If you do know of one, please let me know. I just go with off of what my research tells me. Our friend, the cursory Google search. So quick summary. The librarian is gravely ill, and the wizards of Unseen University are desperately searching for a cure, one that involves finding out the librarian's name. All records have been destroyed, so they set out to find Rincewind, the only person who remembers the librarian before he was transformed into an ape. But Rincewind is still trapped on the distant XXXX, 4X, the last continent, where it never rains and where time and space are not stable. No worries. What were your first thoughts on this novel, Nigel? I sort of struggled with this novel. I did too. I struggled to understand what the point of it is. A lot of the Discworld books have some sort of point that they're trying to make, or some commentary on something like last episode with Jingo, we were talking about like jingoistic nationalism, and like I was reading it as a commentary on the Falklands War and Gibraltar, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel like the position that Australia exists is not a controversial one. So then I was like, well, what is exactly the point? Because the plot of this book largely doesn't make sense to me, but not in the way that the plot of the Hogfather doesn't make sense. I would say it's because there really is no plot to this book. I don't want to say it's episodic, because that's not quite it either, but it, it almost exists as Rincewind sort of tumbling from one event to another, which is his usual MO, but usually you get the sense that when he is tumbling from one event to the next one, that there is like a reason for it, even if he's not aware of the reason for it. This one just seems like things are just happening to him and he's sort of being pushed into this story, but the story itself isn't very clear to the reader. 
I get the sense that Rinsen is just screaming constantly. The whole time. Whole time. Anything happens, he's just like, ah! <laughs> I really struggled with this, too. And I've already been very clear on this podcast that Rincewind's his branch of the Discworld is not my favorite branch of the Discworld. Upon rereading, I really enjoyed Light Fantastic and Sorcery much more the second time than I did the first time that I read this entire series. But this book is probably interesting times and this book are probably the epitome of why I don't like the Rincewind books because it almost seems like from Color of Magic, which is like a straight up send up of sword and sorcery until interesting times in the last continent. It seems like he's really not only gotten away from the sword and sorcery, which is fine, but he's, started to try to maybe say something about the way that mythology and fantasy work in other cultures. And the problem with that is, is that I'm not sure he understands those cultures enough to be able to make a coherent plot out of it. It's really easy to make a plot out of what you know, but when you're talking about a plot that maybe you don't understand very well, what ends up happening is that you just start satirizing culture, which in the case of Australia is fine, but in the case of Asian countries, like in interesting times, can be problematic. So I think that that's my problem with this book is that it's just like it had a lot of really interesting moments and really funny moments in it. But when you put them all together, it doesn't really add up to much. And I don't think it adds up to what perhaps he wanted it to add up to. I'm not sure how to feel about it. Now that we've finished the Rinswim books, like the purely Rinswim books, now we can look at it like the Terminator or Alien franchise and we can divide it down the middle into like three. Three and three where like these are the good ones and these are the not good ones. Right. But I feel like there could have been a way to do... Eric interesting times in the last continent in like an interesting way that didn't rely on like vagaries about what other cultures are and how their mythologies work because like the entire plot of Eric is like going to oh what's the also I realize I I, I haven't listened back to the episode but I, I've learned in the last week that Aztec is a colonial word and we should be saying Nahua uh, so I apologize for that I did not know that I didn't know that um, either that's that's a good catch. Yeah, it's because it's kind of come to the forefront of like pop culture because they have a Nahua actor playing Namor in the upcoming Black Panther film. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so they have the Tezuman Empire and then they have the Battle of Source, which is kind of like the Trojan War. And then you have, you know, obviously various Asian cultures and mythologies in interesting times. And now you have Australia, which it's like a lot of these cultures kind of, well, with the exception of the Greeks, kind of fell under the occupation of colonialism. And so there could have been an interesting way to do that. This was one of the things I thought was really good about the Miss Marvel series, that it, like, tied part of the character's generational trauma into the, the separation of India, uh, into the partition of India and Pakistan. You know, like, so there could have been a way to have an interesting conversation with it. Because, like, like you said, this leaning on what just what you know ends up satirizing cultures and that's like that's the first beachhead of colonialism i think 
Okay, so I, I do want to make this clear, and I don't think it's clear in the novel. Like, you just made me realize what my actual problem with this novel is. Oh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> uh, no, it's good, because I can articulate it now. So, yeah, <laughs> the problem is, is that when you take something like Australia, which is a colony, right? It, it originally was a colony, and there were people there before the British started shipping their 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 prisoners over to to australia Mm. the problem with this is is that terry pratchett in taking all of that history and then trying to talk about it in like a fantasy context but not focusing on colonization what he's doing is is that he's conflating white australian culture with indigenous australian culture in a way that's profoundly not helpful because the idea is, is that when you talk about the creator of the last continent, 4X, and you talk about like the mythology of like drawing the world and, you know, making it rain and all of that stuff, that belongs more to indigenous cultures than it does to white cultures. But things like Mad Max and Crocodile Dundee and uh, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, all of those belong to white Australian culture. And so it's by conflating those two things, he's not able to actually talk about a coherent narrative of fantasy. Yeah, I'm at the end of Interesting Times when Rinsman ends up in 4X, where it's presented mainly through the lens of indigenous Australian culture. He's kangaroo bloke, you know, back in the dream with like the dreamlines. Then once you get into it, like the whole thing about going for a couple tinnies, as a plot point. Also, there's, like, references to, um... Is it called Waltzing Matilda? Yeah, Waltzing Matilda. Down Under and The Man from Snowy River. Those are all the three that I recognized. And things to do with, like, the billabong and whatever. Or, at least, like, in the song, the billabong. When you go by the billabong, you'll hear the the shouts. It's not exactly revisionism. But, like you said, the conflation isn't helpful. Because it just kind of ends up being largely problematic in a way that seems like it had benign intentions? I don't know. Well, because there's a difference between satirizing white Australian culture and satirizing indigenous Australian culture, because one of them has been affected by colonialism much more than the other one has. And so, you know, like, it's fine to make fun of Mad Max. It's fine to make fun of Vegemite. Because those things like belong to white Australians and they are the ones that have held the power in Australia for the last couple hundred years. It's not okay to satirize something that you don't understand, which is indigenous religious creationist ideas. Yeah. I'm glad that fantasy has now has a, a new wave of people telling indigenous myths in fantasy but like ones that they grew up with or ones that are part of their culture and heritage so that like this problem isn't so much a thing like i read rebecca Rowanhorse's black sun which is really good and it was all native american mythology and like in her like afterward to the story she was like well i grew up and there was like no one telling this kind of story or they were telling it wrong and so i was like well if I want to read this story that's about someone like me, I'm going to have to be the one to write it. Because obviously, like, unfortunately, people like Terry Pratchett can't write that kind of story. 
And again, I think this comes from the impulse that was from interesting times where he was like, okay, I've written about British, European sword and sorcery fantasy. Now I want to show the parallels between that and other kinds of fantasy. Like European fantasy is not the only kind of fantasy that exists. The problem is I don't think he was the author to do that. So like I can see his impulses in this. It just doesn't translate correctly onto the page. And I feel like now this is this would be a quote where if we're ever covered in the newspaper or something, this will be like a highlighted section or something. The Rincewind series is largely where the, the Discworld falls flat. Especially the, these later books, I think. Because it's moved away from, like, w- like the Discworld starts at Rincewind. And, like, it's all about him. But then, you, like, the first two books are about him, and then you get the witches, and then you get death. And then you go back to Rincewind, then you go back to the witches. And then book seven is, I don't know, something, and then it's guards, guards is eight. I don't remember. But, like, now you're getting a lot more of, like, the other ones, you know, closer together than you are the Rincewind ones. And the Rincewind ones are coming few and far between. Uh, and I don't know what's going to happen now post this, but it feels like the Discworld has kind of, they've had like a really quick changing of the torch, changing of the guard handing over the torch. The, those are two separate phrases that I've just conflated. <laughs> you know, like it's under new management now. It, it's just evolved. Like the sword and sorcery thing was something very specific that, you know, if you were into that, he was doing a good job of satirizing that. But the thing is, is I think he's lost interest in that as an author. And he's talking about much more interesting things in blending genres like noir and fantasy in guards, guards and the watch books and, you know, talking about, you know, death and uh, like eldritch powers and talking about like the witches and like rural fantasy Like, all of that stuff, I think, is way more interesting than Rincewind. And I feel like Terry Pratchett maybe knew that subconsciously. Like, it just, it feels like this last book was him writing something that he felt like he had to write and not something he was actually interested in writing. Now I'm coming up against the question of, does it not work because it's in a fantasy setting? Is the distance which allows the watch books to present an idealized version of the police force hindering any kind of like meaningful commentary on mythology because like when you read something like american gods where you have all of these myths and legends from different cultures transposed onto these are myths brought by like immigrants into the country and that's where they've taken root and this is how they would work i feel like it's a much better examination of the same kind of thing that pratchett seems to be doing here in the opposite direction. Well, it's also because even though American Gods is fantasy, it is happening in a real world setting. And so Neil Gaiman in that book is able to comment on things like colonization and immigration mm. in a way that's much more distinct than Pratchett's able to do here. Because there's really nothing about colonization in The Last Continent, which is a huge part of Australian history. I mean, the fact that it's a prison barely gets mentioned. The closest thing they get to politics, I think, is um, that they say that they throw their elected leaders in jail as soon as they're elected. And that's just a joke about the Australian prime ministers. Yeah, I mean, and you do get the Dibbler analog saying something about, like, I wish all these people would go back where they came from. And then when Rincewind questions him about it... 
he's like, well, I guess like the only people I want to stay are like me and my friend and my wife. Right. And so like, you know, so there's like pushback against that anti-immigration attitude, which is unfortunately a big thing in Australia, in some parts of Australia, I should say. And I don't know enough about Australian indigenous culture to know whether what he's talking about is accurate. I do know about the dreaming, which is something that he mentioned in interesting times that he does not mention in this book. But I don't, I you know, I don't know anything really about the creation mythos of Australian indigenous culture to be able to say, like, this is a good representation of that. I don't either, but... The fact that there's this dual plot line where Rinson seems to be in the world, like in a world more reflective of modern white Australian culture, and the faculty of the Unseen University are in a world more governed by indigenous beliefs. Like, again, it could have been something. Like, there could have been a way to have those things parallel if you had a better framework you know, like, to put this commentary on and, like, address the fact that Australia is a colony, a penal colony, and a nation, like, still to this day, it's got the Union Jack on its flag Mm -hmm. in 2022. It's one of the few ones that still has a Union Jack on its flag. Let's talk about those two plot lines, because like you said, it, it really is two different branches in this book. We have the Rincewind branch, And we have the wizards from the Unseen University. And those two branches, they come together at the end. But for the most part, they're separated by geographic space, but also temporal space, because the wizards essentially go back in time, right, to thousands of years before Rincewind is in 4X. This is all just adding fuel to my conspiracy board that Sam Vimes goes back in time, because now we actually have people going back in time. Yeah, we do. In a practical way that isn't Rincewind and Eric, like, going to the end of the universe. Right, yeah. Although that does get brought up in this book when Rincewind says he's met the creator of the Discworld. He's like, I accidentally yeah. dropped my sandwich in a pot. <laughs> Let's talk about Rincewind first, and then we'll go to to the wizards. So last we saw Rincewind, he was hit on the back of the head with a boomerang while insisting that he wasn't going to get dragged into any more quests. And yet here he is again, getting dragged into a mythology that he doesn't understand, but he knows he doesn't want to be part of. I know in like previous episodes we had brought up that his character arc feels kind of stagnated since the end of Sorcery, where he sacrificed himself. And this, like, in The Last Continent, he kind of feels like he's more... He's thawing slightly into the character he was becoming at the end of Sorcery, but he's still not the full thing. I don't know, he falls into an an awful lot of the same character patterns, and, like, it's just, it grows tiresome to read, because, like, you've seen... I mean, first of all, you've seen other characters grow, but more importantly, you've seen Rincewind have a character arc, and now it's just kind of like, meh. And so now, like, that's kind of coloring a lot of the wacky what are essentially sideshow attractions that he ends up in for most of the book where he just goes to a location a wacky thing happens like he just has to shear a hundred sheep in two minutes okay now he's on a horse that's upside down okay now he has to do a jailbreak okay no worries 
No worries. Yeah. Which is a phrase that it almost becomes the level of wasp names. I don't think I was as annoyed as the no worries thing because I know that's a thing that Australian people actually say, but it does get said a lot in this book. I didn't actually grow uh, annoyed at this one. Like, I thought it was quite funny, especially when he was just intimidating the people who wanted his horse. Yeah. They're like, we'll give you money. He's like, no worries. No. And they're like, no, no, we want to buy it from you. We'll give you a load of money. And we get." And he's like, no, no worries. And they're like, uh. I really liked, actually, though, when they go to the 4X Wizard University and over the gate are the words Nullus Anxietus. <laughs> that was very funny. I did think that that was... That was clever. And then was it Nihil Sheila Sanguine? No bloody Sheila's. Yeah. <laughs> there is that. I, I do want to say too, like I obviously there's a difference between satirizing white Australian culture and indigenous Australian culture. But I would actually like to know, I don't know enough Aus- white Australians to know this. I don't know if any of this is something that is very tiresome to them or not. I don't know if this is funny. I don't know if it's something that they're like, oh, God, dumb British authors like coming in and like making fun of the way we talk. Like, I have no idea how Australian people would respond to this kind of satire. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't know whether No Worries is on the end, like is on the same end of the line as like, you know, crikey, Sheila, throw another shrimp on the barbie, like that type shit. But I feel like if it is that it's going to grow, this book is going to become very grating very quickly for white Australians. Right. I mean, you're Irish. I'm sure that there are like phrases that people who are not Irish say that like really irritate you because, yeah, right? I mean, I mean, Americans sort of have it too, um, depending on where you're from. In the U.S., like, it's kind of like, like, I'm from Kansas originally, and every time somebody says, like, we're not in Kansas anymore, it, like, really, really irritates me. So, like, I get it. Oh, no, there's a, there's an Australian musician on TikTok called Tom Cardy, and he makes songs, and there's one where he's talking about the big breakfast. It's like, it uses the word arvo. That, that's where I first heard the word arvo. Arvo means afternoon, if you didn't know, which is strange. I don't know how they got to that one. But they're like in a restaurant and he goes, it's nothing too pricey. Don't get the trout. And the reaction that he has in that song is how I feel like you feel when they say we're not in Kansas anymore, which is just ha 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 ha. Fuck you. Pretty much. So, again, I don't know. Like, maybe Australians love this book. I don't know. Like, it's it's very if you are Australian and you are listening to this podcast, I would really like to know what you think of this book. Are we able to see do we have any listeners in Australia from our like statistics? You know what? Let me let me see. I can actually look up somewhat where our I have the page open near where my the current page I'm on in Chrome is. Let's see. Episodes. Let's look at Jingo. New Zealand. We've got three from New Zealand, two from Australia. So if you are in Australia and you listen to this episode, maybe you skipped this episode because you know that you're not going to like the portrayal here. You're like, no, I can't do this. But if you are in Australia, please tweet at us, Nanny's Book Club. Send us a message at nannyogsbookclub at gmail.com. Like, we would really like to know actually how this makes you feel. And we apologize if we if we accidentally 
make you feel worse by talking about it. Yeah, there's an interesting part of, and this is actually something that's interesting. John Darnell of the Mountain Goat's new book, Devil House, which I'm reading, which is about true crime, but it's kind of the same process, which is like representing things truthfully while there's also like, you know, like there's real life people who are in the group that you're representing, but with like true crime, it's like the victims and their families. And in this, like in this case, it's uh, indigenous cultures. The main character wrote a book about this school teacher who, like a fictional school teacher who killed two students who like broke into her home and tried to rob her and whatever. And then they made the thing, they made it into a film and he like goes and watches it and like sees how they've misrepresented it. And then in the town that he goes to, to research his new book, there was a different murder that they made a film about. And he's just like, that film didn't go down well here did it and all of the locals are like no and it's instantly like everything becomes icy and that's how mm. i imagine books like that the last continent like i know we're giving it shit but at least it's not at the level of memoirs of a geisha yes so we have that to like thank <laughs> once again it is not as offensive to make fun of white australians as it is to satirize indigenous cultures mainly because of the power dynamics of colonialism and racism right so it's different, but that doesn't mean that it's not annoying <laughs> to to people who are who are in that culture. I'm just really glad that we haven't gotten any bad Irish representation because, like, these books are being written in the 80s and 90s, which is the era of like really bad Irish accents by uh, actors such as Julia Roberts uh, and mm-hmm. films like The Quiet Man. And I'm just like, oh, dodged a bullet there. I don't think that happens in the Discworld. I could be wrong. We still have, what, 20, 20 books to go? <laughs> All that we've had so far, really, is like the Knack MacFiegel and the, the fairies and lords and ladies, which are very Celtic-inspired. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, I think if one of the characters went around and they went to a country that, where everyone was like talking like fiddly-dee, I think I would actually jump out a window. <laughs> when I asked you earlier about like phrases people say to Irish people, yeah, the look on your face was very like I don't want to say murderous, uh, but it was it was not a pleasant face. <laughs> I was in Dublin yesterday for my interview and I was like in Trinity because there was free Wi-Fi and I can get Monster for cheap there in the student shop. But there was a tour guide going through leading a group of like Spanish students through and they're like instead of an umbrella they had a stick with like a plastic leprechaun on it and i was like oh i'm gonna oh i'm gonna commit a crime <laughs> oh. yeah but going going back to rincewind i do want to talk about the pop culture in this book but going back to rincewind yes i do think he's stagnated as a character i said this before in eric and interesting times i don't feel like anything is really different here because yeah it just becomes this joke where it's like he can't seem to do anything other than what he does which is to respond to being dragged in this way into being the hero reluctantly which is fine to be reluctant but he can't seem to get over the running away you know business and again like we said in eric i feel like you could do this in a more interesting way if you connected this attitude to his ptsd from being in the dungeon dimensions for however long he was in the dungeon dimensions 
and it's hinted at that he does have PTSD in this novel because it talks about him like screaming in his sleep. He does mention like running away from like these monsters and all of that stuff, but it's just not it's not connected as well. Like he's almost become a farce of the original character. Like, you know, like how you get you get characters especially in comedy that are they're static characters because they just have to react the same way every single time in every scenario. That's kind of where we've gotten with Rincewind. And it feels kind yeah. of unsatisfying, especially after reading Light Fantastic and Sorcery, which did have a really good character arc. It's also profoundly disappointing to see, especially because of the era it's being written in, because like all of these books kind of are happening post- the Vietnam War, where, like, the concept of PTSD had finally been addressed properly instead of, like, shell shock or battle fatigue, you know, and, like, the effects on the psyche of people returning home from Vietnam was being studied and addressed. So, like, it's not like it was a thing that was, like, talked about in, you know, vagaries in, in scientific papers where, like, someone came home from the First World War and they were really, really quiet, there was a thing, like, you know, right. this is a, a conversation that was happening on a national level. I feel like there was a lot of military operations, even led by the British, that this you could have had this conversation. Because for all intents and purposes, Rinswin was a soldier. If you made that connection between PTSD and trauma and the way that Rinswin now reacts in every situation, which is to run... I think that would be a really interesting conversation about character because you could say like this character had a character arc and then because of his trauma and PTSD, he sort of regresses into the only way that he knows how to deal with danger, right? Like, you know how like when people... That yeah, that won't lead to him being hurt. Right. And that would be really interesting because there are a lot of people with trauma who talk about like behaviors they've learned that allow them to retreat from that trauma. And so that could have been an interesting conversation with this character, but instead it's treated more like a joke, a very repetitive joke where it's like, yeah. like you said, where he's encountering a dangerous thing. He screams, he runs away. He ends up running straight into the next dangerous thing. There's two things in like recent media that it this like character problem like reminds me of and i don't know whether i've mentioned the first one on the pod on this podcast i've mentioned it on hyperfixations multiple times but thor in endgame like yes. is so deeply traumatized by what he's lost that he won't even let thanos's name be said inside of his house but then the russos are just like well now we're going to make a fat joke about thor because that's you know helpful and progressive uh in 2019 and so you never get to sit properly with thor and understand what he's lost so it doesn't feel genuine in the same way that like just bringing up the fact that rincewind runs or screams in his sleep doesn't feel genuine to what we feel like should be portrayed but then the other one i was thinking of is is just like a wasted character arc that started off with trauma from being trapped somewhere will in stranger things right what's happening with will uh nothing apparently this last two seasons yeah, it's just sort of he's there. Yeah, he's there. Whereas, like, the second season when he was 
infested with the mind flare and like still recovering from being in the upside down and being all on his own was like yeah there's a character who's traumatized and it's done surprisingly well for a show that's like set in the 80s when no one really gave a shit right that was the thing i think that was most disappointing to me about rincewind is that it like doesn't really progress but it doesn't give us a reason for why it doesn't progress it's just like oh isn't this funny like rincewind's a funny guy yeah yeah i did like and this kind of gets us into our australian pop culture segment i hope this is a recurring segment where we just try and relate all future books to australian pop culture vimes lives on a street that means he has neighbors (laughs) (laughs) but yeah ritzman meets this magical kangaroo scrappy who is supposed to be this figure from I guess indigenous mythology, I don't know much about like indigenous mythology, but he's supposed to be a trickster, right? Which is pretty common in a lot of different mythologies, the idea of a trickster. But the kangaroo Scrappy is a, it's a satire of a Australian television series called Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. These are things I didn't know until I looked it up. I've seen that show. (laughs) Is it good? I don't know anything about it. No, not really. Okay. <laughs> it's just growing up in Ireland, one of the main channels you have are like, or a lot of the main channels you have are British imports, but like BBC, so you'd sometimes catch old reruns of stuff where you'd see it like on the internet or whatever, or I don't know, like Blue Peter would do like, you know, a bit where they would show some of it from it. So I've seen bits of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. It's not great. But I just think that the fact that this kangaroo keeps like, forcing Rincewind along this linear plot line of like you're going to perform all of these folk hero myths for this continent and you're going to do it whether I have to like make it happen or not I did think that was funny like the idea of like tricking Rincewind into being like you know this the sheep shearer and you know the the bush you know hero because like that's what he's doing basically is he's performing all of these like Australian folk legends, right? Or archetypes. Again, it gets tiresome, and I don't know how offensive it is, but it is funny that he's basically being tricked by a kangaroo. Yeah, well, because the first like this is the first time where tricking Rincewind has kind of entered into the equation. Because the first like he sets off on his journey with Two Flower because Veterinary threatens him. And then he ends up, like, being drawn into sorcery, at least when he gets to the university. He goes there because he feels he has to, so he feels obligated by duty. And then in Eric, he's coerced, pretty much, by Eric into being his uh, Mephistopheles. And then the Last Kingdom, he does, uh, he kind of helps Cohen out because he knows him. Interesting times, you mean? Oh, yeah. Sorry, in interesting times, yeah. He helps him out because he's a friend and he knows him. And he's like, well, I, uh, I don't really have a choice. This is the first one where, like, tricking Rincewind into doing something works. But it's it's funny that it's never it's never occurred to someone, even veterinary, that you could just trick him in the same way that he, like, reverse psychology's vimes. <laughs> Although that is a very different veterinary. Yes, and I don't think veterinary has the magical deity powers that scrappy has (laughs) i don't think yeah he does i don't know that was the thing that occurred to me during the book actually just real quick where it's like 
And it kind of goes back to my point about how the Discworld feels like it's under new ownership of the characters. That, like, mm-hmm. Rinsman doesn't really interact with any of the other characters outside of the wizards, whereas the other, other wizards have interacted with everyone from every other plotline, and every other plotline with every other one. I mean, the Watch hasn't directly interacted with the witches, really. Mm-hmm. But Carrot, you know, came from near where Magrat lives, so... Like, it's at least connected, but Rinswin has never spoken or interacted with any of them. Well, in Mort. That's the only connection that I can make, is that he was in Mort, and he's yeah. the one who says, like, oh, that's a statue of Albert Malik, the founder of Unseen University. But that's it. You don't really get very yeah. much crossover, at least not in these books. So, yeah, it is interesting that there's kind of that separation between the Rincewind books and the other branches of the of the Discworld. Let's talk a little bit about Australian pop culture. So we've already mentioned Mad Max, which is the film that's being parodied when Rincewind meets Mad, who is a dwarf who's like using this like he's being chased by other other people across you know the, the outback the desert in a a very tricked out cart i guess and so you <laughs> you get that you get that parody have you seen any of the mad max films nope haven't seen them obviously fury road hadn't come out by the time that they're talking about terry bratchett's writing this I, I highly recommend Fury Road. I'm not sure I recommend the other ones, but but Fury Road is pretty good. Fury Road came out in 2015, right? Which is the same year that Terry Pratchett died. Yeah, you're right. That is the same year. Yeah, it's like the sort of unhelpful blending of indigenous and modern Australian cultures in this book isn't unhelpful, but what's really amazing about this book is the time travel and how it predicted Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, it did. So we get the Mad Max one, we get Crocodile Dundee, which is not a series I'm familiar with, although the joke about you call this a knife, will I call this a crossbow, is hilarious. We also get, I guess it's Skippy, the Bush Kangaroo, Waltzing Matilda, Down Under, the Man from Snowy River. We also get, and I only know about this because the week that this episode comes out, an episode is going to come out on Monkey Off by Backlog where my friend Matt talks about the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So it's a really, really cool little crossover between Monkey Off My Backlog and Nanny Ogg's Book Club. But the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is sort of a cult classic 1994 Australian road comedy film that's very campy. And it's about two drag queens played by Hugo Weaving and Guy Pearce and a transgender woman played by Terrence Stamp as they're sort of traveling across Australia. And so we get a lot of that. I think they call it Petunia Princess of the Desert in in this book. And there were I definitely want to talk about that. Have you seen first of all, have you seen The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? No, I'm aware of it. I go to college with gay people. <laughs> it is very campy. And the episode of Monkey Off My Backlog that we did is a camp themed episode. So like Ooh. I watched Barbarella and Matt watched Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Sam did Mamma Mia 2. Here we go again. So it, it's a very campy episode. But my question to you is, what did you think about the way that that particular film is satirized, knowing that you haven't actually seen the film? Because this gets into what we were talking about with Jingo, 
because it's talking a bit about cross-dressing, but it's also talking about transness. And I wanted to get your opinion on what happens in this book. I'm not sure. Really, like, this one confused me. And I'm not entirely sure whether that's, like, to do with the the whole plot of the novel just being confusing or what. Because, like, Equal Rights was, like, to me was, like, straight away, this is a trans book, you know? So, obviously, Feet of Clay and then in Jingo with, with Nobby cross-dressing. That one was slightly more ambiguous than Feet of Clay. This one is just really confusing to me. And I feel like maybe I should watch Priscilla, Queen of the Damned. To understand it better but at the same time it feels like it feels like a lot of the later Rinswin books where something was attempted but wasn't really followed through on where this was just a yeah. thing in service of like this is a wacky thing because you've taken a cult classic Australian film and then you've satirized it but like refusing to acknowledge Australia's colonial history like refusing or just ignoring the like context of the film and just putting it in kind of strips it away at least for me I, I haven't seen the film but i feel like just having it in there what does it serve i don't know i'm sorry i don't have a better answer i feel i feel bad no it's okay no it's okay i I honestly haven't seen the film either, so I can't speak to like how closely it satirizes the film. I do think the original joke is pretty funny where they pick up the luggage and the, you know, when you, when it, it's like, oh, there's a lot of shoes in here. And then it like zooms out and you see the, the cart with the high heel on it and it's Petunia, Princess of the Desert. That's funny. I wasn't sure how I felt about the actual portrayal of cross-dressers, especially because Rincewind seems... Like, the joke is that Rincewind isn't in on the joke. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. We've talked on this podcast before that there is a difference between being trans and cross-dressing. And that's something that Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is very interested in from, from what I know of it. Because two of the characters, two of the main characters are gay men who cross-dress. They are not trans women. Yeah. But one of the character is a trans woman and is referred to by she, etc. So the only real parallel I can see here is that two of the characters in this are referred to by male pronouns by Nilette. And then Nilette herself refers to herself as a woman. And but I, again, I can't tell if the way she's talking about it means like she's a cis woman, or the way she's talking about it is that she's trans and she views herself as a woman. Like it's very confusing exactly how the gender politics of this work. Yeah, because there's a lot of her dialogue that seems to hint at that she's a trans woman, but it's never. Um, obviously, obviously, like media should have trans people in it just because like trans people oh, yeah. exist and and they shouldn't have to like say you know like blatantly be like i'm trans because that's not how trans people are but at the same time it just feels confused like you say it's very yeah. unclear how the gender politics work and it's also like there's some weird feminization of the luggage as well which is strange that rinswin like obviously like the joke is that Rinswin isn't in on the joke, but it's strange that Rinswin doesn't call them out on this, especially because we've seen 
a female luggage in interesting times. Right. And Rinsman has seen it. And but the whole as well, the whole scene where he like makes the luggage take off the clothes that it's wearing and he's like, Oh, did you get your lid pierced and stuff just before he uh Rinsman meets Neil at? That scene feels icky. It feels more like knobby cross-dressing and what is that trying to say exactly than it feels like the trans representation that we get with Sherry in Feet of Clay. Yeah. The whole problem is the series is so British. How does that impact your interpretation of this? The wizards are so British. They're so old and British that I feel like inherently they're not going to understand. And especially, like, in the other side of the plot line, where they're they're trying to explain sex to the creator of The, the Last Continent, and they're all going red in the face and, like, uh, umming and eyeing because they can't, like, physically get out the word, where it's, like, that generation of old British people, like, they don't talk about sex. Sex is, like, essentially a secret. It's a dirty thing. And so, on one hand, like, it makes sense if you view them through these are old British people. But then also, like, Rinswin is meant to be one of the more progressive wizards. I did like how he was like, it's really nice to meet nice ladies. But again, it's kind of like, I don't know. Like, are these people trans? Do they want to be referred to as ladies by female pronouns? If so, we shouldn't have so many jokes about how they're actually men. But if they're gay men cross-dressing, then that's fine. So it, it's just, it's confusing because we're not getting it from their perspective at all. And I almost think that the satire of the film is making it more difficult for Terry Pratchett to do a clean representation of what's going on here. Yeah, it feels like that one time, and I'm saying it feels like that one time, and then I'm going to give a personal anecdote, which you don't know about. But we were watching RuPaul's Drag Race on the TV in the sitting room. And one of my younger brothers was in there. He's 13. And my this is back when my father still lived with us. And he turned around and he said really, really scandalously to him, did you know those are actually men? You know, where it's like, okay, and? like the whole, like, And what's the point? Yeah, yeah. They, like they can be gay men cross-dressing and that can be fine. But then like pretend, like he had that same attitude of like, they're women but they're just men pretending to be women instead of, like, these can be queer men cross-dressing. I don't think it's malicious at all. Like, I don't get the feeling that this is supposed to be, like, ha, 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 they're men pretending to be women. Yeah. As much as it is a satire of a film, it's just kind of a bad satire. Yeah, because, like, cross-dressing is a thing that's existed in popular culture for, like, hundreds of years, you know, back to oh, yeah. Shakespeare and stuff. So it's not, it's not the worst thing, like... No. It sounded like I was saying, I was like drawing a moral line. No, it's not like the worst thing for people to like be hung up on, but it's still weird because it's satirizing a, a specific piece of media. Right. So it's like, what? what is this? What are you doing here? What's the joke exactly? Before we move on, were there any other pieces of Australian pop culture you wanted to bring up? No, I really enjoyed the Land Down Under references every time they said Chunder. <laughs> I appreciated that. Where beard is flow and men just do chunder. Can you hear? Can you hear the thunder? And the Vegemite, I, <laughs> the Vegemite bit at the end. The Vegemite was funny. Yeah, yeah, where it's like we brewed up a bunch of this stuff, and then the men didn't like it. But then they went and they had another bit, and they had another bit. 
Yeah. It's like you don't like it, but you keep eating it. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I have a question for you now. Have you tried Marmite, Vegemite, Bovril, any of those kind of beef or yeast extract products? I have not. I actually want to try them, but I have never had access to them. I've had something equivalent to, I think, Bovril would be the closer one. It was this weird, like, bacon paste jam thing. And it, it was nice. It was nice. Before we move on to the wizards, what did you think about this appearance of the luggage? Not not necessarily with the Priscilla bit, but like the fact that the luggage shows up and does something vaguely luggage-ish. Oh, hold on. My camera's too low. I shrugged there. Uh, Shrug? Yeah, like, it's a Rinsman book. I expect the I expect the luggage to show up. Like, if it didn't show up, I'd be like, well... It's a bad Rincewind book. I mean, this is a this is like <laughs> it's a not bad a Rincewind book. This is like boo zero out of ten. The luggage didn't even show up. <laughs> like, I mean, this is not a great Rincewind book, but for other reasons. Like, the luggage is inseparably bonded to him. I like that it can't find him at first because of the whole space and time issue in the last continent in four X. Yeah. Like it, it's like because we've seen it follow him through time. We've seen it follow him through space, but it's so confused on the on 4X that it actually takes a long time to find him. Yeah, it's not until, like, the closing pages of the novel, really. But then it does the classic thing where it saves him from danger. You know, classic luggage, Rincewind, mess around. Yeah, although I like that Rincewind gets into the luggage this time. Yes, I was going to say, this is the, the time where he actually gets into it. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it in the same way that I enjoyed, like, the kangaroo tricking Rincewind. Because it's like, you, you know when you, like, are watching a franchise that's, like, kind of become hackneyed or whatever? Or, or, like, not even watching, but, like, a book or a video game franchise or whatever. And then they do something to, like, innovate it slightly, and you're like, ah! You know, where it's like, in this one, the kangaroo tricks him. And in this one, he gets into the luggage. And you're like, ah, fresh blood. Ah, I liked it. It was a new it was a new spin on the formula. Yeah, and I like that it finally kind of confirms to us that the the luggage, it like has, like, like inside of the luggage is really multiple insides. Like it's like a shifting, like he compares it to like a trick box, right? Where you put something in and then it disappears. So, like, I, I thought that that was cool that we get confirmation on that. I will also say I did love that the luggage is just friends with Neolette. I think it's hilarious that, like, it reminded me of, like, animals that generally hate everybody except for, like, one person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and that one person, and that one person can't fathom that this animal is, like, mean to anyone else. They're just like, like, Grebo, like Danny Og and Grebo. Where it's just like she can't like conceptualize the idea that he's like terrible to the rest of humanity, <laughs> but like because in her mind she's he's like this nice fluffy little kitten. That's what this kind of reminded me of is that the luggage is like terrifying to everyone except for Neolette, who's just like yeah I just got in. No, does this mean we're gonna get sexy luggage, ugly sexy luggage? No, no ugly sexy luggage. Oh, thank God. I don't think I could. I I I don't think I could have stayed on this podcast as as a co-host <laughs> if that happened. 
the luggage does not actually change shape at any time. It is very much the sapient pair wolf okay, luggage. Okay, good. I would, ha- I would have to message Lazi and just be like, you win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on to the other wizards, I guess this is the only point where I can bring up the Mountain Goats song that I was reminded yes. of. Just because when you're talking about, like, cultural institutions and, like, you know, like, the places that the folk heroes occupy like those spaces and those archetypes where it was talking about like a famous last stand and famous last words it just reminded me of the mangoes have the song uh, which seems like largely out of place with um most of their songs and like most of the songs on the album it's called the last day uh, the last day of Jimi hendrix's life but it, and it it's like just so, it's soft guitar strumming and basically just spoken words and no lyrical complexity, but it's got that like clarity of something that doesn't need to hide behind being complicated, which I feel like the yeah I feel like this book is something that is unfortunately very simple, which is hiding behind a coat of being very complicated. But it's like on the last day of his life, Jimi Hendrix woke up and made his way down the hall, and he adjusted the knobs in the shower till the water came out just the way he liked it. It was hot, but not too hot. It was hot, but not too hot. On the last day of his life, Jimi Hendrix went to the kitchen and he got himself a glass of water and he put four ice cubes into the glass. There is nothing like cold water. There is nothing. And that's it. And like, I'm just reading comments by John Darnielle about this song. The third verse, if there were one, would not be, and here's what caused his death. It would just be another thing a person might do in his house as he went about his day. The song isn't about Jimi Hendrix's death. It's essentially a riff on Musée de Beau Art. When I say riff, I don't mean that the point is the same, but that it sort of responds to Auden's observation, maybe continues it, or zags left with it, or takes it inward some. But yeah, just these are normal things that people do, as opposed to like the famous last words, last stand thing. Right, and most people don't know that the last day of their life is going to be the last day of their life, so they just act like normal Unless human you're a beings. wizard. Like, they just do stuff. In, yeah, unless you're a witch or a wizard. But I like that too, though, because the one thing we haven't talked about with Rincewind, and, and this actually gets us into the other wizards as well, is the idea of the artwork in the cave, which once again is an indigenous thing. So I don't want to say too much about it because I just, I don't have the expertise or the background to know about that. But I do like the way Terry Pratchett describes it as it's simple, but there's like so much in it like it conveys like not just a kangaroo but like all of the things a kangaroo can and will be throughout time the essence of kangaroo the essence of a tree like i i thought that was very interesting and that kind of goes with what you were saying about like this is something very simple but it has like all of this meaning behind it there's a bit that i highlight i'm trying to find it just because obviously indigenous art paintings on the wall of caves is a thing that like people did the indigenous tribes of North America did it too, but it also there was one bit in particular that reminded me of um, the Lascaux paintings in France. I'm trying to find it. I'm not sure. It's the bit where they like rub it off the wall because they're like, well, someone's vandalized. Someone has vandalized this wall. I can't find it, but yeah, it just reminded me of like the way they talk about it. it seemed like the the bison that were drawn on the walls in the cave in Lascaux. Um, which has had to be right, close yeah. to the public because so many people have come in that they're now like destroying it 
with the air that they breathe constantly on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of those places, like you, they're a lot more fragile than people think that they are. Yeah, like the Tomb of Tutankhamun or um, the path to the summit of Mount Everest. Those are things that have been destroyed by human yeah. passing now. There was a thing during the pandemic where all these people were going to national parks so they could be outside. And it was like actively destroying national parks here in the U.S. and like nature and stuff because there was just too many people and like they were just not being considerate of what they were doing. They didn't know how to be out in nature and not destroy parts of it. Actually, can I just talk real quick about this book? It's the last Rinsman book and it meets all of my expectations for death and Rinsman being gay for one another. I was going to ask you about that too, because we get a couple of death sightings and I love how death, because we've had in the last couple of books, like interesting times and Eric, we've had death talking about Rincewind, but we haven't had death interacting with Rincewind like we did in the the uh, first couple of books, like Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic and Sorcery. This, we finally get to see them have conversations again. So I was wondering what you thought of that and what you thought of the way that death keeps track of Rincewind now. It says death had taken to keep Rincewind's lifetimer on a special shelf in his study in much the way that a zoologist would want to keep an eye. Zoologist? Zoologist? Not sure. Zoologist. Zoologist would want to keep an eye on a particularly intriguing specimen. But then both of the death sightings are like, they're not Rincewind's death, like in Color of Magic, where all of the times death shows up for Rincewind, it's his death that Rincewind has managed to avoid then. These are like other people's death that death is taking time out to like go vin- visit Rincewind. He, like, I mean, he says, oh, I thought you might like to see a friendly face. This is just before Rincewind is to be hanged. And now I think I'd better be going. Uh, and then he gives him advice to go see the Sydney Opera Houses. And at the end, it's all right. I have an appointment down in the city. There's been a fight over the last bottle of beer. However, let me assure you of my personal attention at all times. I'm sorry, but if that isn't, allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Then I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I mean... First of all, I love the description of Rincewind's hourglass. It looked like something created by a glassblower who had the hiccups in a time machine. <laughs> That's a wonderful, like, I'm trying to imagine the shape of that now, and it's just wonderful. The other thing that I, I really like is that, they're like, death has no idea when Rincewind is going to die, which is, like, I'm sure that would be very annoying to death as somebody who knows when everyone is supposed to die, except for this one person. But it, to your point about the gayness of this, like, that's, like, in, like, a, a oh, God, I don't want to use this example. That's, like, in a vampire novel oh. where a vampire can read minds except for the mind of one person, and so he falls in love with that person, right? Like, it's like when you have somebody with superpowers and they find the one person who's immune to them, and then they, like, fall in love with them. That That is what this reminds me of. Yeah, I didn't think that death would be annoyed. I think at this stage now, he probably f- would find it refreshing, or at least that's my read on it. Like, the new death, the one who went and bargained for humanity's sake in front of Azrael, is like, well... You know, right. the auditors and Azrael want me to do this clinically and not care about people. But, like, I don't know where the, when this man is going to die. Like, and it's one person. And now I'm just going to be, like, his boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> who apparently apparently does not have any relatives or a last name. Which is something I'd never considered. 
His name is Rincewind. Yeah, but does he have a last name? Does he have a first name? Nope. He's just Rincewind. He's just Rincewind, and then you have Bill Rincewind. Bill Rincewind. All right, let's talk about the wizards. I wanted to start with the librarian because I know the librarian is one of your favorite characters. He's a comfort character, I believe, is how you've described him before. Mm-hmm. Did it upset you that this book started off with him very sick? I was very worried. I wanted the whole book to be about that at one stage because I was like, oh, well, I wanted him to get better. But then I was like, I don't know if I could handle a whole book about the librarian being very sick. I enjoy the fact that he's destroyed every record of his like real name. Just because he likes being an orangutan. Yeah, and see, this feels like another trans metaphor, right? Like, he doesn't want to be dead named. His name is the librarian. He's gotten his name changed by deed poll and he's burned his old birth certificate. When Rincewind threatens to dead name him, he holds him upside down <laughs> over the tower until he agrees not to. I like that, but I also like that it it's still built on this foundation of friendship where it's like... Well, I suppose I'd better do this, and then he picks him up, and then Rinswin is able to tell, like, how he's been picked up without being able to see, where it's like, this has obviously happened before. Right, and the fact that the librarian didn't actually hold him out over the tower, he actually just held him a couple feet over the floor, tells me that he he's friends with Rincewind. If it was just some random person, he would have dropped him off the tower. Oh, yeah, like, he... You know, like he, the fact that he flies into a blind rage when people call him a monkey and like not an ape, kind of fits the same trans metaphor thing. Like he's not a monkey, he's an ape. But then who is it? Was it Angua who he like tolerated when she said "monkey by accident"? And they're like, "Well, he doesn't normally do that." Like he basically gave her a warning of. I think so. I think it's Angua. Yeah, he basically yeah. gave her a warning of don't like don't do that again instead of like beating the shit out of her. And that happens in this book too, except for it's supposed to tell us that he's very sick because one of the things the wizards do is, I think it's the senior wrangler, calls him a monkey to see how he'll react and he doesn't. And so they're like, oh, he's, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. Yeah, this brings up an interesting question. What exactly is the senior wrangler's job? <laughs> I have often wondered that. What does he wrangle? What And why is he the senior one? Is there a junior wrangler out there? I don't know, because you've got, like, you've got the bursar and the dean and the arch-chancellor, and then you've got the chair of indefinite studies, and these are all like, okay, fine. And the lecturer in recent runes. Yeah, and then, um, oh, what was the name of the professor in the last book, you know, where he's talking about culture and it all exists for him, the anthrop- um, Anthropomorphic certainty, I Anthrop- think. Yeah, something like that. Where it's like, these are very definite fields of study. Where it, this is like, just senior wrangler. It, seems, it sounds like he's just a very old cowboy. <laughs> I like that idea, though, actually. Like, he's just a very old cowboy. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the librarian's illness being, like, every time he sneezes, he transforms into something else? Like, it's, it's morphic... Is it, did they say it's temporal morphic uncertainty? Because once he's, we talked about this before with Grebo. Once you change something, it's easier for it to then change. At the start, I was slightly unsure when he was like changing into things like a deck chair that Ridcully was sitting on. But then when he was like, I'm a dolphin now, I was like, yeah, okay, this is fun. The librarian can be a dolphin. But I think it's very funny that he retains his like red fur. So he's a red furry deck chair. Yeah. And a red furry dolphin. Those are the one, those ones I mainly remember. And then, like, the black nails. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I did like the end where Mrs. Whitlow is carrying the very small librarian, like him as a as a baby orangutan, uh, because of the, the temporal stuff with The Last Continent. I found that very cute. I imagine that he's cute like Baby Yoda is cute. Yeah, but I also appreciate that, like, them going back in time and becoming younger versions of themselves, the librarian became a baby orangutan and didn't become a baby human. Because that's not who he is. Yeah. Good observation. Well, all right. Tell me what you think about the wizards, this group of wizards. We followed them before on many adventures. This time, in their search for a cure for the librarian, they end up going through a temporal hole, I guess is what you would call it, and end up on this island thousands and thousands of years before they were born. Genuinely, I thought this was some of the funniest like the funniest fucking material that's ever been put into a Discworld book. They're like that wasn't a joke. <laughs> because they're just like a bunch of old people bickering at one another. There's a one like there's one stage where where they're like the is it the Dean is talking to Ridcully and he's like, I looked up my test results and I actually got higher than you and it's like when did you do that? After you got after you became Arch Chancellor, why did you do that? Just so I could feel better. Yeah, and then Ponder, because you get Ponder, who is the young one, right? The the young postdoc student. And he is just so, like, he doesn't understand them, and they don't understand him. And so the interactions between those two groups, I just think is hilarious, especially when it comes to time travel. The stuff about the grandfather paradox is some of the funniest stuff that... I, I agree with you. It's some of the funniest stuff that the wizards have done in these books. Yeah, and I like that uh, Ridcully grasps the grandfather paradox, but then points out, like, he takes the, the, the paradox of it as, like, confirmation that this is just ridiculous nonsense, instead of, like, this is the whole point, right. and it can rip time and space asunder. He's like, well, if I go and do this, then I won't be born, so I can't do it, so what's the point? Yeah, like, I, that means I already did it, which means I didn't do it, which means I did it. Like, the idea that, like, anything you do in time, if time travel were possible, anything you do would have to have already happened, because otherwise you wouldn't be there. There's another paradox in this novel, actually. I'm trying to find... Did, did you notice it? There's a, a ship of Theseus in this. Oh, no, I didn't. The British sitcom Only Fools and Horses has a really interesting example of... The ship of Theseus is called Trigger's Broom, where Trigger is a character who's often used for comedic effect, but he's like talking about getting a medal for sweeping streets in the community. And he said that he's had this broom for like 20 years or whatever. And they go, the same broom. And he's like, yeah, well, it's had five new handles and four new heads. And they're like, how is it still the same broom? But Rincewind's hat is basically a ship of Theseus. Yeah. I did remember that. I just didn't make that connection. Yeah. He'd woven a new wide brim for it, and he'd had to restore the crown once or twice with fresh bits of robe, and most of the sequins had been replaced with bits of shell stitched on with grass, but it was still his hat, the same old hat. A wizard without a hat was just a sad man with a suspicious taste in clothes. A wizard without a hat wasn't anyone. And I appreciate that it's tied into Rinswin's like, desire to know who he is which is a thing we brought up in the earlier Rinswin books, but now that his character is stagnated, it's kind of like, you know. Yeah, but he does still keep the hat. He still keeps the hat. But again, to turn briefly to Rinswin, like, 
there's so much you could do with that. Like you've set up what's basically a ship of Theseus here, and then it's never really turned on Rincewind to be like, well, what parts of him were replaced by other newer parts, right? And how does the Rincewind that he is now differ from the Rincewind at the start of Color of Magic, and are they the same person? It's never turned on Rincewind, which I think he could benefit from. Oh, I agree, a hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, that was almost like an actual English analysis. <laughs> that was almost, yeah, yeah. We're getting very close to like intellectual stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting so close to intellectual stuff here. Yeah. What did you think about the God of Evolution? Obviously, we've had a few sort of like outside the traditional gods of the Discworld, like Offler and Blind Io and the Lady. You know, we've had the O God of Hangovers, Bilius. We've had the, the other small gods. Uh, and I like that the God of Evolution is an atheistic god. Like, as, as a foundation point, because, like, his sphere is just, like, evolution, which is purely scientific. Like, I, I like that as a basis. The basis is not having faith in gods, even though it's a god doing this work. Because isn't there a branch of Christianity that, like, accepts evolution, but it's like, well, God made evolution happen instead of evolution isn't a thing. God created everything. Yeah. Yeah. There are some that they view, like, Genesis as being more metaphorical than literal. So it's like he, like, created evolution, but then evolution happened over all this time. He wasn't my favorite, really. He was slightly wacky, which I think is the tone of this entire book. But also that scene where they have to explain sex to him. I like he could have just watched Grease too. They could have sang reproduction to him. <laughs> yeah, I did enjoy the thing where they're trying to explain it and they're like, usually they make smaller animals inside them. Like, no, that wouldn't work. Like like you would just get elephants the size of rabbits. Will they grow? <laughs> like Yeah. And that Mrs. Whitlow is the one to to explain it to him, like the assumed sexless woman, because they're like, was there ever a Mister Whitlow, and none of them know. Yeah, and they're like that. They, they got the distinct impression that Mrs. Whitlow had won whatever like interaction this was. Yeah, I I did enjoy that. I also I will say I enjoyed the Jurassic Park reference when they had the T Rex like come out of the jungle and then like they're like don't move, like they can't see you if you don't move, and but then it like quickly evolves into a chicken. That was pretty funny, I thought. But then, like, I don't know. Like you said, I, I, th I'm going to bring this up later when I talk about the thing that made me think. But for the most part, this just seemed like a way of allowing the wizards to do something yeah. on this island. Yeah. And it also seemed like a way to really engage with the character of Ponder Stibbons, who we haven't really had a lot of in-depth perspective on We've gotten some before with Hex, but this was an interesting way of like actually giving us his perspective on a lot of things. And the way that he thinks about evolution is very similar to the way that Rincewind thought at the beginning of this series when he was in Color of Magic, when he's like, I just want things to make sense. Like, I, I would rather things be laid out along a scientific line than a magical line. That's kind of where I see Ponder Stibbons kind of inhabiting that space as a character. The way that he wants things to make sense, but because it's the disc world, things inherently don't make sense. And so he can't really handle that. 
he doesn't respect the senior wizards because they don't they argue all the time and they like deliberately misunderstand him but at the end of the day they are more adept at handling the world and the reality of the disc world than he is yeah it kind of gets into the fact that he nearly feels slightly like an outsider to them and it's like that's something that hasn't really been brought up but like he didn't he he basically didn't get into the like being an actual student there or like you know like a researcher there because wasn't it that they were just trying to trick Victor in moving pictures and then Ponder ended up sitting his paper by accident? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, so like, he didn't really get in on any merit of his own. He did it on the understanding that they were trying to get someone else to succeed or fail. And so now he has to like live up to that as well. Like, the whole descriptions of um, Ponder's childhood, you know, where he's like just an exceptionally organized child and where he writes down every single present that he gets, and he has all the thank you notes written out by tea time. And, like, the little flip book where it says hours of fun, he's like, I don't understand how anyone other than a psychopath would get more than, like, ten minutes of fun out of this thing. But Ponder did. Yeah. The thing is, is that I think he would do very well on the real Earth, right? Because he would be a scientist. He'd be a researcher. But... Within the reality of Unseen University, his paradigm of looking at the universe is, it's not correct. Like, it's not, it doesn't work with the reality of the Discworld. And so he takes to, I thought this was very interesting, he takes to reading the invisible writings, which Hex comes up with, these, like, writings of things from other realities and other worlds. And to him, those things make more sense than the actual way that the Discworld works. And the implied thing here is that he's reading things from the real earth, right? That's how he comes up with the idea of evolution is that he's reading like a textbook from earth about evolution. Hence why he doesn't like fully understand it. Then that kind of like raises the question, uh, which is, which is one that we brought up in our color of magic episode where it's like, how exactly does Rinswin do that with the dragon? Like, how does he tap yeah. into that world where he becomes Dr. Rin's wand? Obviously, it's a metal dragon, but the concept of a plane is an alien one to the Discworld. You know, we've talked about that as well. Right. We're think we're there's references to things that like characters of a story have no way of knowing, but the audience does. But like now that Hex is able to um, put out these invisible writings, then it's like, is there something there that Rincewind did? Is there something not? Who knows. What did you think of Mrs. Whitlow in this book? We've seen her obviously before. She's a fixture at Unseen University, but now she actually gets more of a storyline. I loved her in this book because she's essentially the straight man to a bunch of exceptionally straight men. <laughs> the wizards the wizards are so like old upper crust British society that now they're allowed to go out and be just wacky and like bicker and have hijinks and so mrs whitlow has to be like the straight man to their dynamic first of all i didn't enjoy the whole like the dean swooning over her thing the senior wrangler is it the senior wrangler they all are like attracted to her but it's the senior wrangler who's like really gross about it i don't know why i was i don't know why i thought it was the dean uh sorry but i i enjoy that she has like actual agency in this thing and I also enjoy that she has a regional accent. Yeah. I mean, I can, I 
don't know exactly what accent it is, but like I can hear it in my head. And it's just from things like AI for I. A? Yeah. I'm not sure. I heard it. I heard someone doing that accent in a TikTok. And I, do, I, I was like, I should go and check what it is. But like the way they say no in that accent, no. She is such an interesting character to me because she's introduced in Equal Rights. And yeah. she clearly has a lot of power at the university, but in a domestic sphere. Which is like totally alien to the wizards. But she's been around the wizards so long that like nothing really phases her anymore. Like she just kind of assumes everything will work itself out because she's just kind of like, like, yeah, like if they were fighting like creatures from the dungeon dimension, she would still ask them, like, is there some trouble? Like, you know, like she's just like very unfazed by all of it. But she moves through life with this like assurance of being somebody who without her, the university would fall apart. Granny Weatherwax is really impressed by her. Right, yeah. She says she's almost a witch. Yeah, like, she has the same kind of assuredness that, like, Granny Weatherwax knows where she is the rest of the world. It's the rest of the world that needs to, like, catch up to her location. And, like, it, it's a lot, it takes a lot to, like, actually impress Esme Weatherwax. Yeah, but Mrs. Whitlow doesn't. She kind of has the power of that, like, back end, because that's what they say to Esk. That, like, there is a, a way for women to get into the university, kind of, like, like, it gives the implication that she's allowed a bunch of, like, powerful or, like, strong women to have their life in the university, even if it is on the domestic level. Although, again, it does feel like she's slightly more threatening in that book than in this one. She's more, like, she's more, I guess, matronly to the wizards because, like, they need someone to, like, look after them and ensure they don't drown. Well, part of it is that, like, the wizards, and this comes up in a footnote, I don't have the actual page, but the wizards have what feminists often describe as learned helplessness, which is yeah. where they... They don't have the HW gene, it says, right? Yeah, yeah, they don't do housework. And part of that is because of gendered expectations, like women are the ones who do domestic labor, which is not valued. But... They could, come on, they could do housework. Like, everyone can do housework. <laughs> Unless, like, they're not physically able to in some way. They could do it. They just won't do it. And so the idea is, is that they have learned that if they don't do it, somebody else will do it for them. And it's called learned helplessness, right? It's like when husbands leave sinks, their dishes in the sink because they know that their wife will clean it up because they don't want dishes to be in the sink yeah that's kind of the dynamic between them right but she seems like perfectly content to take on that role the, the university seems to have an offload of people who are like completely like at one with who they are and what the job they do is i'm thinking of moto especially and she's she's very similar in that way and yeah she's gonna have a different relationship with the people that she has direct power over versus the wizards which she has indirect power over yeah uh i did like the scene where they're on the boat and then they're like uh, being uh beset by sharks and they're like well where's mrs whitlow <laughs> she's just gone swimming yeah i think the scene on the boat is really interesting too because when they leave the island and they go to 4x 
there's all this like raw magical power because this new continent is being created and that causes them to almost evolve into sorcery level like wizards fighting each other right and ponder is the one who's like the magic is doing this it's not you that also tells me something about ponder by the way because he remember he came of age he came into the unseen university after all of these things had happened right where rid coley had put a stop to all the assassinations and ambition and and you know like death that was happening in the unseen university so ponder has a fundamentally different view of wizarding than the rest of the wizards do but hmm. like it is interesting that we see that de- like that that devolving so quick like it happens so quickly that rid coley and the dean are like throwing fireballs at each other it's the lord of the flies until Ponder is like, it's not you, it's the magic, right? It's almost like, like, and they're like, well, the primary purpose of wizards is to do magic. And he's like, no, the primary purpose of wizards is not to do magic. I like the, the quote where they said at one point, the plural of wizard was war. Yes. And we've seen that before. So this was a really interesting way of pulling that thread back in with these people who we haven't really seen affected by it. And like in recent books, there's kind of been an attempt to, like, redress this or have the wizards at least, like, come to terms with it. Like, you know, with the Convivium, they now have a thing to mark the end of, like, wizard governance and stuff. But before, like, no one was really, like... Everyone was too ashamed to talk about sorcery. Where they were like, oh, no, I was at my aunt's house. But, like, in this one, they kind of, like, at least start a conversation about it where they're like... Talking about Ridcully, and they're like, you know, we used to assassinate people like him when when they got to his age and his station. And then they're like, well, like, well, it's a good thing we got rid of that. And like, why did, why do you think we did it? Oh, because well, we were rational then and we got past that age and we know better now. So, like, they're starting to have these conversations about, like, well, maybe the way they used to operate was not great. And the whole, like, remember what we used to say? You never trust a wizard over 65? Well, what happened? we're over 65 right (laughs) like yeah like the idea of we realized that this wasn't sustainable and so we had to change it i also did like the footnote where it was like the last time someone tried to assassinate rid he couldn't hear out of one of his ears for two weeks literally putting a stop to all of these things is like one thing and yet his rule or his word is kind of law as our chancellor but it's it's nice to see People other than him being like, yeah, it's not sustainable, like you say. Uh, Speaking of which, what did you think about the wizards on Forex? The the parallel university that they have with Bill Rincewind. Bill Rincewind. Bill Rincewind was very cool. And I kind of brought up the fact that I liked that he has a name, that he's Bill Rincewind. One thing I really, really liked was the tower in their university. The fact that it's taller on the inside. Yeah. Or, uh, like, it's taller at the top on the inside. But how tall is it? It's two floors. You went up them. I I really enjoyed the way the university is set up. I do like the callback to Eric where they think that Rincewind, for a while, they think he's a demon that they've summoned. Because they're like, well, we know how this goes. (laughs) I also like that there's there's two deans, right? There's the... The dean of the one in in Forex and then the dean that we know from Unseen University. Like, the interactions between the two groups of wizards, I think, is very funny because, first of all, there's that very British thing where Rid Coley assumes that the Arch-Chancellor from the Forex University is not as good as he is, right? Like, oh, you're you're like a colony wizard. (laughs) 
which like was the closest that they got to talking about colonization in this. But then there's also like the fact that they're really the same. Like Rincewind's like, you really are wizards, aren't you? Like, as soon as we say that we're in danger, you want to argue about whether we're actually in danger or not. And like the way that he refers to Bill Rincewind as Archchancellor, but with a lowercase a. Yeah. (laughs) They make a point of saying that he somehow pronounced it with a lowercase a just to show that like, well, he's the real Archchancellor. And like the fact that it starts raining and they don't know what happened, but they're like, Sure, you can't say it wasn't us. Yeah, no worries. No worries. I have to say as well, just like the concept of the wet. Yes. I like anthropomorphizations of like things or concepts or like events, you know, like the wet, the flood, that kind of thing. Maybe it's because I'm reading an awful lot of Sandman at the minute. I'm get, I'm bought like the first six volumes in like two big collected editions recently so i'm reading them but like the wet and like rincewind is in service of the wet and like then when this flood comes and it just it rains and rains and rains and then it rains some more it did take me a while to actually make the connection that because at the beginning of the book scrappy is like you caused it not to rain by coming here like you changed something And it took me a while to realize that the reason Rincewind had changed it was because his being in 4X had caused the wizards to go back in time and the librarian to steal the the bull roarer. It took me a while to realize the connection between those events. I was like, how did Rincewind cause this? I still don't understand. So it took me a while to realize that that's the, how the two threads were really connected to each other, is that rinse, them looking for Rincewind is what caused the thing to happen. And that's something you don't see in a lot of like time travel stuff, where you've got like two separate timelines where one thing happens in one that like directly affects the other, but like dis- like two distinct ones. You know, like it's right. not a case of someone it's not like tennis where you do something and like it's the immediate or like very recent past or present that's affected right a cool example that i really liked was the 50th anniversary of doctor who where they're like take the programming for how to open this door into the war doctor's sonic screwdriver and then it's instantly in the 11th doctor's screwdriver because there's like hundreds of years in between the two and obviously then you have just the funny moment of the door has been unlocked the entire time, which I feel like is a very Discworld moment. Yeah, it's just been unlocked the entire time. All right, some cameos very quickly. Um, there's two I wanted to pay attention to. I've talked about some of the other ones so far, but we do get a reference to Donut Jimmy. They talk about how they called him to look at the librarian at the beginning. That's the same vet that actually treats Lord Vetinari in Feet of Clay, the one that dopes racehorses basically finally we get the 4x version of dibbler who i mentioned earlier and who rincewind pretty much confirms like the theory that there is a dibbler everywhere how does this fit into our dibbler is an ancient immortal being or a archetype theory hold on that's me doing charlie day Pepe Sylvia board. <laughs> I, I like that because then he lists off a whole bunch of ones that we've never seen, but Runeswin has interacted with all of them. That he's had meals from all of these different ones that we, we've never seen because it starts off with like the ones he he's met in Ankh-Morpork and in, is it Hung Hung? 
So yeah, it's cut me on throat dibbler, disembowel myself honorably diblas, algibla, may I never achieve enlightenment diblong, diblossonson, which we have not seen, may I be kicked in my own ice hole dibuki, and swallow me own blow dart delang delang. Delang delang feels like a slight outlier. Yeah. But he had green beer, apparently. <laughs> oh no, is that the Irish one? What? Green beer? But delang delang. Yeah. Because there's a lot in this about roles that people have and various forms. There's one, there's a bit that I highlighted. There's a bit about Zeus. Yeah, and they're, we're, they're talking about like the three different ways that he's appeared to women. As a, a shower of gold, a swan, and a bull. And it's like they put them forward as like three separate deities, you know, like how gods appear, but it's the same one. And I feel like that's kind of the same principle. Yeah. Although I like the, I've always been suspicious about that shower of gold one. Yeah. Like, how does that work? <laughs> how does that work? Like, you know, you did your, your, um, you did your thesis on, uh, delirium from Sandman. And so like, oh no, like there's a lot in that, in how like, there's only one figure, but like mythologies view them as like separate ones. Like when Morpheus first gets back to the dreaming, he has he he consults the Hecate and he says like and they say oh like that's an old name you may as well be calling us like the Marg and the Maka and the Bab or like you know other triumvirate goddesses and stuff and like how delirium and delight are is wasn't it delight that delirium used to be. Yeah. yeah, how they're, like, the same person, but, like, now Delirium is presenting herself as Delirium, uh, and how, like, Destruction has moved out of that role. Yeah, and, like, the idea that, like, whenever you see Morpheus throughout time, like, he appears differently to different people. Like, in yeah. the one about the cats, for an example, he appears, like, as a cat, and, like, for like different races he appears as that race he doesn't always look the same he even appears to martian manhunter as like the martian god of dreams right so like the idea that a lot of gods have like different faces that they present to different people but it's like the same one yeah and that just gets more into it when they go to like the fairy worlds and like loki how he has like separate faces but he's still kind of like the loki archetype well, and you can trace that back to archetypes, right? Yeah, because it's like the archetype of the trickster has many different forms throughout mythology, but it's all, we group it all under the title of the trickster. Where is, there's something about that. There's a, a quote that I highlighted from, yeah, about um, Skippy the Kangaroo. Uh, a creature like him appears in many belief systems, although the jolly name can be misleading. Yeah. Tricksters aren't all nice. In fact, most of them aren't very nice at all. All right, before we wrap up, I did want to spend a moment talking about how we feel now that we have finished a branch of the Discworld. This is the end of Rincewind's arc as a protagonist. Like I said, we're going to see him again. Do not worry. Those of you who are like, we see him again, who are listening, I, believe me, I know. I don't. Yeah, but this is this is it. I mean, this we have officially finished a branch of the Discworld. How does that make you feel? I mean, it's kind of sullied by the fact that like the last three books are not great and kind of like ruin all the work that the first three do. And not to keep banging on about that, because we have said a lot about that. 
but I don't know. It feels it feels slightly momentous. Obviously, there will come a day when we finish all of the Discworld books, but this is the first time that it's happened. The closest we've had so far is Magrat taking a backseat after Lords and Ladies when she finally becomes married to Varence, but she was like replaced by Perdita. I mean, we've had one-off books before, but it just doesn't feel like we haven't followed a character from beginning to end of their main character arc in this way. I mean, I wasn't particularly crying when we saw the last of Tepich and Tracy in uh, Pyramids. The only thing I really cared about the ending of that book was, first of all, it's over. Yay. Uh, <laughs> and also just like the thing about Dios just going back into that loop and just becoming slowly more and more like crazed. Right, yeah. I like, though, that Rinswin will continue on in whatever like capacity in the future, because the Discworld now, as it stands, is finally, like, an interconnected story, where, like, characters from other plotlines will show up in, a, you know, like, even in a background thing, like when they're in the opera in um, Masquerade, where Nobby and Colin are just there. Like, we're finally at a, a, the stage where, like, the character who started off this series can take a back step and it can still continue on and still feel no less diminished. It's not like Rick Grimes no longer being on The Walking Dead, that type of thing. What did you think about that last scene with him where he's sitting on the docks and it really reminded me of the scene from Light Fantastic where he's on the docks with Two Flower, where we say goodbye to Two Flower from like their mutual adventures but like he's sitting on the docks and like that whole thing he interacts with all these characters in the book he says goodbye to bill rincewind and neolette and all these people and the last sentence that's really with him before we get to the end of the novel is the luggage followed him up the gangplank and they went home it was very bittersweet because the whole thing the whole thing was he just couldn't get home and so like i think he spent his whole life running. And so the fact that he like actually gets to go home and like the connotations of home, I think it's the, I think it's the appropriate end to Rinson's character arc. He can finally go home after his odyssey. Cause he basically was the Odysseus figure from Eric onwards, you know, like at the end, the end of interesting times, he just wants to go home, but then ends up because of the triangulation of the signal, just getting sent to four X yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are, obviously, because you've read them, uh, you've read them so many times, uh, and you've read the whole like forty-one book series. But like, what were your thoughts back when you first read this? Well, I read all of these out of order, so I don't know if I had a really good grasp on like this being like the end of an arc the way that I do now, having reread them pretty much in order. Yeah, we read all the Rincewind ones in order. So yes. I think I liked your comparison to Odysseus because you do get a lot of those vibes from the way that he has been trying to get home, but like circumstances have prevented him from getting home. Does that make the librarian Penelope <laughs> or the library <laughs> Penelope? Because, yeah, the librarian has been like waiting for him, right, to come back. The inference here is that he's going to return to the job he had in sorcery with the librarian. He's just going to be an assistant librarian in the library and that's what he wants. He wants to just have a boring job, to be at home, right? To have access to potatoes. I forgot about that. <laughs> he just wanted potatoes. It feels like a there and back again to me. You know, like, 
but an unwilling Varen back again. <laughs> but he finally gets to come back, right? He finally gets to be at home. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say the last three books have been the most satisfying of his character arc. I feel like they could have been more, but it does feel like a good like underline to the end of him as a protagonist. It's the it's the only ending I think of that would be appropriate for Rincewind. I couldn't think of any other thing that would work. Like if this were the end of Rincewind's character arc and they decided to I say they like it's not one man writing it. We see you, Terry. <laughs> if it was decided that he would just go off on another adventure or be forced onto one, but then, like, just, like, cut away from him and be like, well, we, we've we left Rince when he's off on an adventure's un- unknown. I feel I would be... I would be annoyed with that because I feel like it would be kind of a betrayal of Rincewind's character at its very core. I won't say more about that. Let me just put that... I'll, I'll put a pin in that. Th- those of you who have read ahead know what I'm talking about. I'm, like, afraid that some of our listeners are going to be, like, so angry with me for being like, this is the last one. I know. I know it's not the last one. Yeah, I can't think of another ending that would feel satisfying. Yeah, because, like, Rincewind doesn't really have a family. Like, I mean, we know now that he has apparently no relatives, and he has no name other than Rincewind. And, like, he doesn't have, he doesn't have, like, a wife or partner or husband to go home to. So all he really has is that room at home uh, in the library working with the librarian. Yeah, he has the librarian, he has the luggage, and he has death. Those are like the three people that pay attention to him. Yeah, and he has two flower kind of, because they kind of made a reconciliation. But still, like, the ending of that was like, well, this is another permanent goodbye. Right, yeah, he's not going to go back to the Agitian Empire. Unless he, unless two flower writes another book, like what I did on my summer holidays. <laughs> Part two. Here we go again. All right, wrapping it up. We've already talked a bit about the death sightings in this book. There are three of them. The first one is, of course, in Death's House, which we get a little Albert sighting in there, too, because they have a conversation about 4X. And we get to see him twice more, like you mentioned, Nigel, in interactions with Rincewind, where he comes and he's just like, good day, and like has whole conversations with him. But it turns out he's not there for Rincewind. We get a Death of Rats sighting, also in this book, in Death's house, we do see him living with death. Does Death of Rats live in that house? I don't feel like we've had closure on where the Death of Rats actually resides. I'd like to think Death has built him a small house outside for him to live in. That would be nice. Yeah, I could see that. I'm very concerned now about the habitation of the Death of Rats. Like, does he have a home? Does he have his own space? We need answers, goddammit. (laughs) So there are no sort references in this. Once again, we are out of sorts. I will keep making that joke until the end of this podcast. The first footnote is, yeah, at the very beginning, it's really the second page of the novel. Anyway, no one seriously believes in that story because a race quite that stupid would never have even discovered slewed. Footnote, much easier to discover than fire and only slightly harder to discover than water. I liked that footnote, actually, because it felt very Douglas Adams-y, which we haven't really talked about that since really Color of Magic, 
But like occasionally that Douglas Adams like absurdity kind of humor will pop its head through this. And that that just felt like something he would say, like the discovery of slewed by by different races. But they bring it up later on, too, just like as a known thing. It's an on-running joke. It's actually in that housework gene footnote as well, where they're like leaving the dishes in the sink until they discover slewed. It's one of those things that I like when people just say a thing like everyone knows what that is. Like, like I don't know, face meats or something. <laughs> what was the best footnote? What was your favorite footnote? This was my favorite footnote because it's like extremely relevant and happened to me last week was the... This isn't magic. It is a simple universal law. People always expect to use a holiday in the sun as an opportunity to read those books they've always meant to read, but an alchemical combination of sun, quartz, crystals, and coconut oil will somehow metamorphose any improving book into a rather thicker one with a name containing at least one Greek word or letter, the gamma imperative, the delta C's in the alpha project, and, in the more extreme cases, even the mu cow pie caper. Sometimes a hammer and sickle turns up on the cover. This is probably caused by sunspot activity, since they are, are invariably the wrong way around. It's just as well for the librarian that he sneezed when he did, or he might have ended up a thousand pages thick and crammed with weapon specifications. <laughs> I know that's like a joke on the like Robert Ludlum uh, born and like associated properties. But like when I went to Amsterdam, I brought so many books with me. I'm like, I'm going to have so much time to read. It'll be, it'll be great. But then I was like, what I failed to take into account was I, w I went with a group of people who really wanted to drink. Ah, yes. The old vacation conundrum. The old vacation conundrum. And I got no reading done for that entire week that I was in Amsterdam. This actually also seems like a variation on the joke from Good Omens about how if you leave a cassette tape in a car for a fortnight, it will automatically turn into a Best of Queen cassette, which is very true, I think. This has happened to me before. One of the first CDs I ever got was um, Queen's Greatest Hits, which makes me wonder what the CD actually was a fortnight before my parents got it for me. What was it originally? Yeah, there, that's a really funny joke from Good Omens. And so it, it feels really fun to, to see it here with the books. Yeah. My favorite footnote was the one about, it was much later in the book, where they're talking about Dibbler's Pies. Yeah, that's going to make the story about the land of the giant walking plum puddings look very tame. I don't mind telling you. No wonder you people drink so much beer. Footnote, there is no such thing as an edible, nay delicious meat pie floater. It's mushiness of peas, just the right consistency. It's tomato sauce piquant in its cheekiness. It's pie filling tending towards even the named parts of the animal. There are platonic burgers made of beef instead of cow lips and hooves. There are fish and chips where the fish is more than just a white goo lurking at the bottom of a batter casing and you can't use the chips to shave with. There are hot dogs fillings, which have more in common with meat than mere pinkness, whose lucky consumers don't apply mustard because that would spoil the taste. It's just that people can be trained to prefer the other sort and seek it out. It's as if Machiavelli had written a cookery book. Even so, there's no excuse for putting pineapple on a pizza. I have a couple of different reactions to that. I love the first part of that footnote because I just feel like that's true. Like... Everybody has like that thing that they grew up eating that is really gross on paper, but you eat it anyway because like that's what you grew up eating. Like and that's like it like reawakens that nostalgic part of your brain, right? And so it's like, you know, yeah, this is probably not the best burger in the world, but do I eat it? 
because it reminds me of a time when I had to eat it before. Sure. It's like when my mom used to make fried bologna sandwiches. Like, bologna is really gross. And like, why would you fry that? But it's delicious because my mom used to make it for me. Right. I don't know if you have like a childhood food like that. Rat tatui. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like as if Machiavelli had written a cookbook. That's like a perfect way of describing it. However, I disagree about pineapple on pizza. I love pineapple on pizza, especially if you can put jalapeno peppers on it. The spiciness with the sweetness works really well. And I would challenge anyone who doesn't like pineapple on pizza to try it with something spicy. And you put some ham on it as well. And some ham. Yeah. Salty, sweet, spicy hits the spot. I've converted people, by the way, using that. (laughs) I have converted them to liking pineapple on pizza. Don't send me hate mail, please. What's something that made you laugh in this book? It's the bursar. Uh, Like, obviously, all of the banter was really funny, but just the bit when they're, like, going onto the beach with the seed, and, like, the bursar stepped off. Hooray, he said. My feet are wet. What a nice forest. Time for tea. And I just imagine him saying it like in a completely deadpan voice, just hooray, my feet are wet. What a nice forest. Time for tea. And then just like whoop. And then because he picked up the seed and rammed it point first in the sand. Then he wandered away up the beach. How did he do that? Said Ridcully. I mean, the man's crazier than a ferret. Damn good bursar, of course. By and large, the, the bursar has just like a lot of the things he said in previous books have just been like thoroughly insane things where he's just been like on his dried frog pills. But there's a lot in this book about, like, the bursar maybe having some sort of mental illness. They say at one stage the voices in his, like, the voices in his head have never been this, like, direct before. Yeah, he's, like, created this, like, alternate reality that he lives in because it's preferable to the real world. Yeah, which is uh, a nice sort of, like, counterpoint to Ponder and Rinswin being like, I want to live in a world where it's rational. Whereas the bursar doesn't really care as long as it's not his immediate, like, actual lived reality. He almost seems happy in this book, though. Like, they take him to the beach and he, like, is happy. He's on a grand adventure. He's not really, like, the butt of a lot of the jokes and Rincewind isn't yelling at him constantly. Like, there is a bit of yelling, but it's not, like, the constant levels of, um, like, interesting times. Or even Hogfather, where he's like, Bursar, uh, like, how did you kill that man in the closet? Yeah, he just seems so happy. And, like, him watching the creator, like, make all the animals, like, that was such a great scene. Because he was just, like, like watching it happen and, like, very happy about it. He says it was one of the happiest times of his life. And that was just really nice to see. I like, there was a lot in this book as well about, like, with Ponder and the Bursar, where they're, like, like, much later when they looked back on this. That this, you know, like... This is a really important thing, but the scene with the bursar watching the creator do all the paintings just reminded me of the scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where they go to the gallery and they look at um, Sunday Morning on the Island of the Grand Jatte by Surratt, and it just zooms in and in on the detail of the painting, and then at Cameron's face. Because Cameron is pretty much the bursar of this book. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely correct. I've never made that connection, but you are right. Constantly put upon by everyone like around him. That scene always makes me cry. Just like it's some sort of like quiet, unspoken type beauty that I'm now speaking about and ruining it. <laughs> the funny thing is that the thing that made me laugh was also a bursarism. 
because it was, and I actually laughed out loud when I read this, but it's the part where it's very similar. Ponder, so it's on the island. Ponder side. The point about fruit, sir, is that it's a kind of lure. A bird will eat the fruit and then, er, drop the seeds somewhere. It's the way plant spreads its seeds around. We've only seen birds and a few lizards on this island, so how... Ah, I see what you mean, said Red Coley. You're thinking, what kind of bird stops flying around for a quick smoke? A puffin, said the burser. Glad to see you're still with us, burser. Yeah. <laughs> Laughed so hard. Like, it's such a simple joke to say, like, a puffin like is a bird that stops to have a smoke. But, like, it's one of those rare intersections where the burser is really trying to make a contribution. And it's a contribution that makes sense in this situation, but it doesn't make sense. Like, it's very funny to me. It's the indicator that he's still, like, with them. Yeah, glad to see you're still with us, Burser. And that happens a couple times, like during the, the grandfather paradox when Rid, Coley, and Ponder are arguing over it ab- about treading ants, and the Burser's like, so does that mean we should wear bigger boots? Like, that that kind of, like, contribution, I just think is very, it works pretty well. Yeah, and then once they've decided to stop arguing about it, he's like, so, just to be clear, can we stand on ants or not? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he's like treading on the ants that he finds because even though he's unclear about where they came down on it, he thinks that like maybe he can stamp out the one that leads to Rid Coley being the Arch Chancellor. What's something that made you think? What's something that made me think? I mean, a lot of the stuff to do with like places in mythology that like people occupy, but like that's something that I brought up in previous books. Oh, I found There's it. There's a whole lot of depth to this book. Yeah, I found it. I- the bit about the Lascaux cave paintings, but like just that attitude towards like art, um, and specifically like indigenous art. And there, Rincewin sighed, wasn't that just typical? You got some quiet little beauty spot miles from anywhere, and there was always some graffiti artist already to ready to spoil it. It was like that time when he was hiding out in the Moor Pork Mountains, and right in the back of one of the deepest caves, some vandal had drawn loads of stupid bulls and antelopes. Rincewind had been so disgusted he'd wiped them off. And they'd left lots of old bones and junk lying around. Some people had no idea how to behave. <laughs> Obviously this is a satire. And it's kind of like the lie is given with some people had no idea how to behave. But like we were talking about earlier, like, there's just so much of human history has been destroyed by people who don't care about it. There was like a Victorian archaeologist who like was doing excavations just with dynamite. And he was just blowing shit up. Like devil may care. Oh, oh, ah! That reminds me. There's a there's a show that Stephen Merchant and Christopher Walken are in on the BBC called The Outlaws, and they're doing a they did a thing where they were like doing they're doing community service and they're like painting a building to like get rid of the graffiti. And then Stephen Merchant like pitched a thing. What if oh what if we have like a Banksy on it and then we paint over it. And so then they, like, got in contact somehow with Banksy, and Banksy did, like, an original piece of art for the show on this wall of a rat, and they, like, kept it a secret from all the rest of the cast and crews. There's only, like, two people knew about this. And then the day of, they said to Christopher Walken, we've got an actual Banksy here, you've got one shot, and you have to paint it over. And the scene is very, the scene is very, like, relevant to this, because he's like, it's like, I've got a rat, and they're like, we you know, you need to dispose of any dead rats. No, but it's a painting on the wall. And it's like, well, it's very clear what we have to do with paintings on the wall. You've got to paint over them. And he's like, but I think it's really good. It might have some worth. And it's like, just do what you're meant to do. 
And so then you just got this great shot of a paint roller going across a bank scene. Well, and like that's such a a good. I haven't seen this, but it's such a good like commentary on Banksy as well because they create art that kind of is disposable because people often paint over it. Do you know of the Banksy with like the framed Banksy that had a shredder built into the frame? No, I don't. Oh, so this is another one that they did about this whole like disposability of art thing, and you shouldn't set great stock by it just because it's art. Where it was like went up on auction and someone paid millions for it and it had like once it was sold it had this thing built in where it would go through a shredder, the bottom half of the thing. And so like you've got just the top half in the frame now and just like the dangly bits from the shredding. So the thing that made me think, again, I don't, it was hard for me to come up with this because this book I don't think has a lot of depth to it. So like. There just wasn't a lot of profound things in this book. But the thing that I really did like about this was actually about the God of Evolution, which was not a plot line I particularly appreciated, but I did like his conversations with Ponder and how Ponder saw the God of Evolution as a way of like, finally, like, we can get this right. I can understand the universe. It can be orderly. I can get it. And then he realizes that. Like, because Ponder has this view of the universe where, like, the ultimate goal of evolution is humanity, a a species that can self-conceptualize, that asks not what they are, but why they are. But the god of evolution doesn't care about humanity at all. In fact, he cares more about beetles. And then at the end, his ultimate creation, the cockroach, right? Like, the cockroach is actually what he sees as, like, the evolutionary pinnacle. And so, like, the idea of, like, decentering humans as, like, like, evolution doesn't care about humans. Like, it's not, first of all, evolution isn't an anthropomorphic force. But, like, the idea that we constantly put humans at the top of, like, whatever diagram, like, the whole point of this universe is so humans can exist. No other species would think that, right? Like, for all we know, the goal of the universe is to create cockroaches. Or goldfish. Yeah, or goldfish, you know, like it's it, that I thought was actually very clever. Like this idea that like Ponder has this view of like creating humans and the go- oh, the god of evolution is just like, no, it's about cockroaches. Why would I care about humans? So next episode, vampires move into Lanker in Carpe Juggalum. Ooh. Yeah, we're doing vampires and witches. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find my shows wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's like Lesbianist, Hyperfixations, and Archive Admirers. Only one of those is still ongoing. I'll let you figure out which one. And then you can find me online on Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where it's currently 139 days until Avatar 2 comes out. I've I've tweeted about the Will Smith Oscar slap recently. My job interview. Uh, oh, birds aren't cool enough to do drugs. Back to my strange surreal ones. I tweeted a loss meme. Oh, no, my best tweet ever, uh, in my opinion. If you stood on top of the Empire State Building and dropped the Empire State Building on the head of a pedestrian below, it would kill them on impact. It feels very much like a, a Discworld footnote. Yeah, it does. That's a good tweet. Thank you. It got four likes.
You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast that I mentioned in this episode, Monkey Off My Backlog. You can find that on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. I would really like to plug the camp episode that came out. When this episode comes out, it will have come out two days previously. It's a brilliant episode with our friend Matt. Very, very cool. If you like camp, it was a very good conversation. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. The rain stopped. The last few drops hammered out a little rhythm that said, Now we know where you are, we'll be coming back. The boy laughed. The old man looked up, caught sight of him, and grinned. He tucked the bull roar into the string around his waist and took up a boomerang painted in more colours than the boy had ever seen in one place together. The man tossed it up and caught it a couple times and then, glancing sideways to make sure his audience was watching him, he hurled it. It rose into the sky and went on, cli- and went on climbing, long past the point where any normal thing should have started to fall back. It grew bigger, too. The clouds parted to let it through, and then it stopped, as if suddenly nailed into the sky. Like sheep which, having been driven to a pasture, can now spread out at their leisure, the clouds began to drift. Afternoon sunlight sliced through the, into the still waters. The boomerang hung in the sky, and the boy thought he would have to find a new word for the way the colours glowed. In the meantime, he looked down at the water and tried out the word he'd been taught by his grandfather, who'd been taught it by his grandfather, and which had been kept for thousands of years for when it would be needed. It meant the smell after rain. It had, he thought, been well worth waiting for. The End